Good morning on this beautiful, beautiful fall day that feels like the middle of summer. Um, anyways, welcome. Welcome. I don't have that much to talk about besides I'm just delighted that you're here and that we've got our Bible study kicked off. Um, I do want to make an announcement that's actually not for folks here, but if you're watching online, um, we could put together a Zoom small group if that interests you. Um, we just wanted to have at least five people sign up for that. So if you're watching online and would like to do a Zoom small group on Wednesday evenings, um, could you just reach out to me or to Holly at the Village Church? Um, my email address is terry, T-E-R-R-I dot Dixon, D-I-C-K-S-O-N, at gmail.com. Or if you guys know anybody who wants to participate in a Zoom type of way, we'd love to get that going if we have enough people to participate. Besides that, it's just a beautiful day, and we have Neil here to lead us in Bible study, so let's get going. Thank you, Terry, and good morning. The Lord be with you. It is a beautiful, beautiful day today to gather together to look at God's Word. And this is part two of our study in the Gospel according to Luke. And we'll be focusing on, on baptism and what that meant for the first century church, for the early worshiping communities, uh, what it meant for the Gospel witness, and what it means for us today. And so will you join me in prayer as we seek the aid and guidance and wisdom of the Holy Spirit as we open up God's Word? Let us pray. Most gracious and loving God, we give you thanks and we give you praise for all the many ways that you bless us, all the many ways that you love us. And one of those important ways is that you uh, provide your Word in sacred Scripture. That from generation to generation, O oh Lord, you have spoken through your Holy Spirit to equip, to transform to empower and to encourage your people throughout the ages. We turn to you, O Lord, as we gather together, um, whether it be in person or through virtual means, knowing that we are united in the spirit of Jesus Christ. So we ask you, Holy Spirit, to grant us wisdom, to grant us, uh, to grant us understanding, to open up our minds and hearts as we open up your word. We pray your blessing upon those gathered and those scattered. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. And everyone has their outline. We're going to be looking at the gospel according to Luke, verse 3, chapter 3, that is, verse 21 through chapter 4, verse 13. Let us hear and receive God's word. And there's a lot of names that we're about to. And so forgive my pronunciation if it's a little off, but let us hear God's word. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his work. He was the son, as was thought, of Joseph, son of Heli, son of Mathet, son of Levi, son of Melchi, son of Janai, son of Joseph, son of Matthias, son of Amos, son of Nahum, son of Esli, son of Nagai, son of Meath, son of Matthias, son of Semyon, son of Josic, son of Jodah, son of Joannan, son of Risa, son of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, son of Neri, 
son of Melchi, son of Adi, son of Kosam, son of Elmadam, son of Er, son of Joshua, son of Ele Eliazar, son of Joram, son of Mathat, son of Levi, son of Simeon, son of Judah, son of Joseph, son of Jonam, son of Eliakim, son of Melia, son of Mena, son of, son of Mattatha, son of Nathan, son of David, son of Jesse, son of Obed, son of Boaz, son of Salah, son of Nashon, son of Aminadab, son of Admin, son of Arni, son of Hezron, son of Perez, son of Judah, son of Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham, son of Terah, son of Nahor, son of Serug, son of Rehu, son of Peleg, son of Eber, son of Shelah, son of Canaan, son of Arphaxad, son of Shem, son of Noah, son of Lamech, son of Methuselah, son of Enoch, son of Jared, son of Mahalalil, son of Canaan, son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. Ooh. Well, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. The word of God for the people of God, holy wisdom, holy words. And everyone says, thanks be to God. As Pastor Jack had shared in uh, part one of this uh, Bible study series on the gospel according to Luke uh, last week, whenever you read the gospel according to Luke, you have to put the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, side by side. It's believed that the writers and the community that were inspired by the Spirit to write, uh, Luke and the book of Acts were, were the same. And so in looking at the two, we have to pay attention to what is the agenda or what is the purpose for both. Um, seeing as Luke and Acts were written around the first century or the late first century, so decades after, right, uh, decades after the events that are narrated here, what were the prevalent concerns of the early church, the first century church? Uh, there were several. One is, is that God's people, and particularly the apostles and the early worshiping communities were trying to figure out um, what are the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth? Uh, Jesus had ascended already um, into heaven. 
He was physically absent, but present with them by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And they're trying to make sense. What was the core teachings of Jesus Christ? And how do we live that out? How do we make sense of it? How do we pass it down to the next generation? Since uh, the apostles you know, um, would be dying off and, and many of them would be scattered abroad, how do we teach? How do we inculcate? How, how do we instill uh, the so-called mission, vision, and values of Jesus Christ? Second, in doing that, how do we correct any misinterpretations, heresies? How do we correct any misunderstandings to be sure that we get the message right? That we be sure that the message of the gospel, that is that Christ lived, died, rose again, that Jesus Christ, who is the eternal word, uh, God himself who became flesh and dwelt among us, uh, son of Mary, son of Joseph, and all the rest, that all of those uh, biographies, the, uh, the biographical sketch of who Jesus is, that that is maintained and so that the truth of who Jesus is and what he taught, what he was about, can be passed down to the next generation and to all of the other churches that were being developed. Number three, the early church was, of course, struggling to figure out how do Jews and Gentiles, how do Jews and Gentiles belong to the one covenant of God? Um, of course, we know that the disciples, that the apostles were all, uh, were, all, uh, were all Jews. But then as the word, as the gospel was being spread out, uh, there were those who were in the Gentile communities who were uh, being converted, who were receiving the gospel and trusting uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there were infighting, right? There was conflict. How do we understand that those who are not Jewish by culture but that are part of now the faith, the uh, emerging Judeo-Christian faith, how do we understand that both Jews and Gentiles belong to the same family? Uh, as people were, as, as early Christian communities were, were saying, well, no, uh, Gentiles belong in that room and we are in this room, we are in separate rooms in the one house, there was this infighting like, no, we're all in one house. We're all in one room. We all belong one to another. And so that was a challenge for them. And many of the letters uh, in the New Testament speak about that. And then, of course, the notion of uh, the early church uh, trying to offer the gospel witness over and against a culture that was not welcoming of it, whether it be the Roman Empire, whether it be pagan, uh, the pagan cultures around them, um, they were being persecuted both internal and from the external forces. Um, and so how do they offer a concrete witness, both in doctrine and in practice, that offered and bore witness to the generous love, the generous uh, love of God in Jesus Christ? How do, we, how do we do that? How do we live out our faith over and against the surrounding culture, over and against a a political structure, a political system that wanted to quash, that wanted to quash the witness of these worshiping, uh, these worshiping communities that wanted to silence um, any voices and anyone who would speak of Jesus of Nazareth. So it was a very revolutionary message. It was a very revolutionary community. It was a very revolutionary way of thinking and of living. And so, with that context that's, and that framework, then we enter into these texts in the, 
in Luke chapter 3. And so these three sections in your outline, as you could see, um, we're going to be looking at it in, in the framework of baptism because our text begins with Jesus' baptism, right? Jesus' baptism. Now, why would the early church uh, recount this? Remember, this is decades after, right? This is decades after Jesus was baptized. Why speak about Jesus' baptism? Why, why was Jesus' baptism so significant? Um, we need to be mindful, of course, that Jesus himself wanted to be baptized. He insisted that he be baptized. Uh, baptism in its origin is Jewish in its origin, right? Uh, in, in, the, uh, in Jewish ritual, uh, baptism or the rite of purification was to wash sin, was to prepare the priest, to prepare the community or whomever was going to be offering a sacrifice on behalf of the community um, to prepare themselves in order to be worthy, if you will, uh, to offer a, an offering on behalf of the whole community. Um, and so it was a rite of purification. But Jesus, by being baptized, not only saying that he is purifying, not that he needed to be purified because he was the son of God, right? He is without sin. He was indicating there uh, by his own baptism that he would die. Now, I shared uh, this past Sunday in my sermon, and Pastor Jack, I shared the, the prior Sunday that, um, that I lost my paternal grandfather. And when we speak of a believer or a Christian dying, we can say that their baptism has been completed, right? When we all die, we say, your baptism, my, my baptism is now complete. Because what baptism is, is uh, baptism is a declaration of death. It is a, a declaration that I am being united to Jesus Christ in his death, dying to self. Um, it is washing away sin, but the washing away sin is because that in baptism we are being tied to Jesus' own baptism as he was indicating that he would die, right? So his baptism is an indication, number one, that going back to the uh, Jewish rite of purification, that he is being declared or he's being made worthy of what is to come, his ministry of death, his ministry of, of crucifixion, his ministry of service, dying to self, um, dying to self and then rising to newness of life, going into the water and then rising from the water. This is where the early church community labeled the rite, the ritual of baptism as both the tomb and the womb. T-O-M-B, the tomb, we die to self, we are buried with Christ, and the womb, W-O-M-B, we are reborn with Christ in his resurrection, right? And so, to recount the baptism of Jesus for the early church was to say that we are tied, we are united, we are connected, we are knit to Jesus' own baptism. Now, remember, one of the teachings that Jesus told the disciples, as, we, as it's recounted in Matthew 28, go ye therefore, and I like the King James Version, go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I have commanded you, right? 
Matthew 28, 16 through 20. And I am with you always to the end of the age, he promises. He didn't just say, go ye therefore and teach, or go ye therefore and baptize, or go ye therefore and love. He said, go ye therefore and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teach them all that I have commanded you. Why, Why does he do that? What he's doing is he is combining both the, uh, the teaching, the oral teaching, love God, love neighbor, right, with baptism, the oral word, the oral word and the physical act. Um, it is so important, I think, for us as human beings, right, when we say something, that it's accompanied by an act. If we say to our kids, our grandkids, our family members, I love you, but then there's no there's no accompanying act of that. Our son who's in college, you know, when he, when he comes home, when he will come home in December for Christmas break, he knows and he loves our cooking. Now, if he just walked in the door and said, oh, welcome home, son, we love you, but then his, you know, there's nothing on the stove, he won't feel like, well, wait a minute, I'm here. Hello, right? In some ways, what, in many ways, what baptism is, the teaching of Jesus, the teaching of the gospel attached to the act of baptism go hand in hand. The vocal and the physical. In baptism, what is being declared to you and to me as brothers and sisters, as sons and daughters of God, is what is being declared to Jesus. And what was that? You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That is, that that voice from heaven, God saying that to his son Jesus, that you are, Jesus is the beloved son. You are worthy. You are worthy of my love. My love is in you. My heart is in you. That means that all those who are attached to Jesus' baptism, likewise receive that same word. And who is that? All of us, Jews and Gentiles. That we receive that same word by derivation. Not because of who we are, not because we're smart, not because we're sophisticated, but because we are united to Jesus Christ, who he himself was first baptized so that all those attached to him will likewise receive that word of affirmation from the Father. Now, baptism for the early church also meant several things. And I put this in your outline. The act of baptism, the act of baptism is both a confession of faith and an initiation into the community. Let me break that down. Baptism, remember, is a declaration that I am with Jesus, that we are with Jesus, right? Which means that it is a visible act of protest to the wider community, to the pagan cultures, to the wider world, to the political powers to say, Caesar is not our Lord. Our allegiance is not to you. Our allegiance is not to this or that. Our allegiance is to Jesus. Our allegiance is to the triune God because we are being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that at its core, baptism is claiming us, 
God is claiming us by a physical act and saying, you are mine and I am yours. We belong to God. So that's, that's a key part. It is countercultural. It is challenging the, the, all those around you and saying, Jesus is Lord of all, period. Right? So baptism is a confession of faith. But second, baptism is an initiation or it welcomes those who are being baptized into the community. That's why we baptize in the context of the assembly, right? What, whenever we baptize, we, are, um, we do it in community. The community blesses and the community welcomes those who are baptized into this community. That's why when we pastors baptize people here in this sanctuary, whether it be as infants, as teenagers, as older adults, whoever, no matter what age, we carry them if we could, right? And we tell them, we tell them, here is your family, but your family, your community, extends beyond even this congregation, right? It includes the billions all around the world, and even then, it's not just those who are living, but also the communion of saints who have already gone into the everlasting arms of the Lord, right? And so baptism is saying that we belong one to another. We belong to a wider community, a, a community that is loved by God, that is loved by Jesus Christ, and that in turn then shares that love to one another and supports one another in that walk of faith. And so that's what is happening there in this, in this first section, the early church recounting Jesus' own baptism for the purpose of, number one, being faithful to, the, um, to his life, right? They want to narrate his life, his ministry. But number two, to show that he is the worthy Savior, because of the rite of purification. And number three, that Jesus is claiming us and that we are claiming him as Lord and therefore declaring to everyone else that he is our Lord and we're going to follow his way, his teaching, and show his love. Now, all of you know that our eldest son and I um, went to walk on the Camino de Santiago pilgrimage. Um, over the summer, and I'll have more to say about that later in the fall. We're trying to figure out the, the date to do that. I'll have photos. It will be here in the sanctuary on a Sunday. We'll have lunch. We'll have 30 photos. I have 800 photos, but I promise only 30. 30 photos. And <clears throat> the Camino's symbol, when you walk on the Camino, the Camino symbol is a scallop shell, a sea scallop shell. And that's why, by the way, the, the, uh, dessert, the dessert of choice is a Madeleine cookie, if you didn't know, right? Very Proustian at that, right? But the Madeleine cookie, because it looks like a shell. But in any case, the sea scallop shell became a symbol for pilgrimage. Because when the pilgrims would walk this, and this is a centuries-old pilgrimage, they would end up in, uh, in northwestern Spain in the cathedral or in the city of Santiago de Compostela, in the Galician region of Spain. And a few kilometers away from Santiago de Compostela is the Atlantic Ocean. And they would, in fact, go all the way. They would go past Santiago de Compostela and go to the ocean, thinking that that was the edge of the world, right, the edge of the earth. And so, Legend goes that there was one pilgrim who went there and, and uh, was riding a horse, fell off the horse, fell into the water, and the water was filled with sea scallops. And so pilgrims would take the, the sea scallop back home or back to their home churches when they would go back to say, 
we finished the pilgrimage, right? And so the scallop, the sea scallop, for centuries then became a symbol of pilgrimage. And so as the pilgrims brought the sea scallop back, priests would use a sea scallop for baptism. Because by the 12th century, sprinkling of water at baptism was accepted, not, not just immersion into the water, but sprinkling. And so in some churches, in fact, in many churches, like the Orthodox tradition, some Catholic, some Presbyterian as well, Methodist, Lutheran, they'll use a, a, a scallop shell in order to pour water on those who are being baptized. So the scallop shell became a symbol of both baptism and pilgrimage. Pilgrimage, as our son and I um, learned and reaffirmed in our faith, that the Lord will be with us and provide for us in the pilgrimage of life, right? Recounting Jesus' baptism for the early church was to say, Jesus is with us on the pilgrimage of life and faith. Because we belong to him and he to us and us to one another, that the Lord will provide for us on the way. Remember, early Christians were called the people of the way. Right? And that's why we have that stained glass window there, the, the way, it's called the way, because Jesus is on the way with us. And so by the very fact that baptism connects us to each other and to the Lord says, we are not alone. We are not forgotten. In fact, quite the opposite. The Christian faith, the, the Judeo-Christian faith is intended to be in community one to another and to the Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So now we get to the second section, the genealogy with all the names. And we have to ask ourselves the question, why is it that between Jesus' baptism and the account of Jesus' baptism and the temptation in the wilderness, why is, it, why is there sandwiched between the two accounts the genealogy? Now, I don't know if there is a, a curiosity here. I asked at, at La Casa Glen yesterday. I'm sure that the men's Bible study tomorrow will ask me the question because they like to be very curious about the nuances of the text. So I don't know if this is uh, percolating in someone's mind now. Someone might be asking at the microphone later, why is there two genealogies in Matthew chapter 1 and in Luke chapter, in Luke chapter 3? If that's not a curious question for you, that's okay. But if you're going to ask that question, I'm anticipating that. But if you're not going to ask it, that's okay too. But the genealogy here, what is going on with this genealogy? Just as a frame of reference, um, the Matthew genealogy starts and ends in a different place than in this genealogy here in Luke chapter 3. Where does this genealogy begin from? It starts with Joseph. Jesus' father, right? The one betrothed to Mary. So it takes Jesus' genealogy from contemporaneous to Jesus. Like, it starts from his present and then goes to the past. Right? That's how, it's, that's how it starts. Uh, begins with Joseph and ends with Adam. So it goes backward. Now, what is going on with this genealogy? It starts with... It starts with Joseph to establish, right, that he that he is part of uh, part of the uh, the uh, Jewish family, but then it ends with Adam, who is the son of God. So what's going on here? 
Remember going back to the purpose of the gospel according to Luke and the book of Acts. What's the agenda? What's the purpose? To speak about the early Christian witness to the Gentile nations, to the world, Jews and Gentiles. So what this genealogy is establishing is this. Jesus is both the anointed uh, Messiah, right, from the Jewish Palestinian community, who is at the same time a member of the human family. He is the Son of God. He, he has both, uh, he is both, he has divine origins, he is, he is divine, while being a member of the human family. He is the one who is in the world, but he is one who transcends the world. All in that genealogy. Now what the early Christian church is doing by recounting this genealogy is to say that Jesus Christ is the real deal. He is the savior of both Jews, that's why it starts with Joseph, and Gentiles, Adam, son of God. He is the savior and Lord of both the Jewish community and those who are outside. In other words, they're recounting the family tree of Jesus to say that we, the early Christian communities that are now having both Jews and Gentiles in our churches, and the gospel witness that we're sharing to Jews and Gentiles, we are legitimate. We are also the real deal. Because the message that we share is of the Savior who is both human and divine, who is both Son of God and Son of Man. That he is, according to the gospel, according to John, he is both the eternal word, God himself, who became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. And when you connect that to the prior section of baptism, the church is saying, we belong to that guy to that Savior, to our Savior, to our Lord. So now we get to the third and final section, to the, to the baptismal life, one of the very first tests of living out one's baptismal commitment. What does it mean to die to self and to rise to newness of life, both, both as an individual, as one who's been baptized, as well as the baptized community? What are the commitments or the calling of being baptized? Remember, as Pastor Jack says time and time again, it's not, it's not just that we have received salvation or, or we have our ticket to heaven, right? That the Christian life has commitments. We have responsibilities because the love of God, the blessings of, of God's love, God's peace, God's joy has been, has been given as a gift, there's responsibility. There's responsibility to share that love and to offer that love and the blessings of God so that others may know of Jesus Christ and others may seek to be baptized as well, to receive the calling to be baptized, to be connected to him and to one another likewise, right? So that the word would spread and the word would be, uh, uh, would be lived out to every corner of the earth. And so in this uh, first test, if you, if you will, or this first um, proof of the baptismal life, 
This is a familiar text. Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Spirit. Again, it's intentional. The Spirit leads him. Uh, the Spirit is with him. The Spirit is accompanying him. He is not forgotten, which means, let's now connect that to, the, to Christians, uh, to, to followers of Jesus. When we're led into the wilderness, the Spirit accompanies us, right? Whenever we feel that we have been forgotten, whenever we feel that the enemy, that the, that the devil, that any forces that seek to contradict, that seek to contravene, that seek to frustrate God's love and God's promises, this text says the Spirit is with Jesus in the wilderness, and likewise, remember, those who are connected to Jesus are likewise receiving those same benefits. The Holy Spirit is with us too in the wilderness. But as we go on with the text, Jesus is tempted. So what does that mean? We are tempted as well. We are not exempt from being tempted. Now, the difference is, of course, is that Jesus is without sin, right? Even though that he and we are tempted, we consistently and constantly sin, isn't it? Whereas Jesus didn't. And so here in these three temptations, if you will, and not exhaustive, not exhaustive temptations, it's just three, and we know that there's millions of sources of temptation for us, but here are three. Here are three key temptations. What's the first one? Our nourishment, right? Our nourishment. Where do we get our sustenance? Um, where do we get our strength? Where do we get our life? Number one. Second, power and authority. Uh, the sources of how we feel significant, how we feel worthy. And the third one, security. How do I feel secure? Will God rescue me? Right, in the first one, the enemy, uh, Satan, and the devil tempts Jesus to transform the stones into bread. Jesus, you're hungry. Transform it. Now, we know here throughout these three temptations that the devil, Satan, just as in Genesis, uses God's word and tries to twist it or tries to misinterpret it and misapply it. it. And how does Jesus combat that? Again and again, he uses that word, that same word of God to say, no, no, no. Devil Satan, don't use the word against the Son of God, against God himself. I'll use that same word against you. Because the word of God is, is the sword, right? Is a sword to which I'll do battle. So if you want to do battle, Satan, let's go at it. And you're going to lose. And so in that first temptation about what is the source of life, he says, man does not live by by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In other words, that we find our sustenance, our life through and in the word of God. Now, let's connect that to the early church. Let's connect that to, to churches in the first century and now. Where is our life? Where is your, uh, your source of nourishment in faith and life? Now, of course, we need bread, right? We need bread, we need steak. We need fish, we need chicken, we need pasta, all that stuff. But we need the Word of God to nourish us, to nourish our, to nourish our, our, our faith and our life. But there's also a little exhortation to the early church as well. What's the flip side? What about those who don't have food? 
What about those who don't have access to the word of God? This part of the temptation is a reminder and a call to the early church then and now and in every generation that as the word of God and physical bread, right, provided by God nourishes us, the flip side of it is that there are so many who don't have. And so what should the early church do? And what did they in fact do? They fed. They gave food to the hungry, isn't it? Both physical food, just as Jesus feeding the 5,000, and the spiritual food of the word of God, right? So Jesus' answer to Satan, to the devil on this temptation, is yes to say the word of God is how we live. But the flip side is also to say those who don't have food, early Christian communities, be sure to attend to those who are hungry, both physically and spiritually. And as we read in the book of Acts, that's in fact what they did. And thankfully, that's what we do here in the Village Church, right? And hopefully churches everywhere do that as well. Um, that if there's people that are hungry, both physically and spiritually, that we attend to both. To the second temptation, the uh, temptation about power, where Satan uh, invites Jesus to go and see the kingdoms of the world. Now, of course, we know that Jesus being the Lord of Lord and the King of Kings, he doesn't need to see the nations because he's the Lord of the nations, right? So Satan is being foolish here. And Jesus... Uh, combats again Satan and the devil to, again, the word of God to remind, uh, you know, the devil that, um, you know, that, um, that all worship, all worship the Lord already and are called to worship and to give allegiance to him because he is the Lord of all. Now, to the early church, what does that mean? That means, number one, it's a reminder that all power and authority belongs to God. And therefore, anyone who is in a position of authority should exercise it with humility, should exercise it knowing that, um, knowing that God, that through Jesus Christ, all of our authority and responsibility comes from him. You all know that since the beginning of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic in March 2020, I've, I've convened every single day at 5.30 in the morning a daily prayer liturgy. And in fact, I was up this morning at 5.30, gathered together. I think a couple of you may have been on that, on that call. Except for the summer break, we have uh, met every day from Sunday through Saturday, 5.30 a.m. via Zoom or Facebook, Facebook Live to offer prayers and to read the daily lectionary for that day. Uh, and we lift up prayers of members of this congregation, people, personal lives, uh, the nation, the world, the church, all around the world, et cetera, et cetera. Every single morning, we pray for um, leaders of the nations, all nations, not just the United States, but everywhere, and all those in positions of responsibility. And here's our prayer, that, Lord, you would remind them that all power and authority comes from you, and that your sense of justice, righteousness, and love would be in their hearts, and that they would serve for the benefit of the common good. Whether you're a president, prime minister, whatever, we also, and I'm mindful, that you don't have to be a prime minister, a queen, or a president to be in a position of responsibility. This does include those who serve on HOA boards, who sometimes get power hungry. 
This also, for those of you who have, who have or have had uh, children in school, those who are in PTO organizations, the parent-teacher organizations, and, th and those, are, those are hotbeds of politics, isn't it? Uh, where many parents like, feel on, the, on their high horse, oh, you know, if you're not good to me, then no cookies for you and your classroom, right? So no matter what position of authority you're in, whether you're uh, the leader of a government or leader of a committee or leader of, of your, your bridge club, right? You're in a position of responsibility. Be reminded in this temptation that we are to exercise it in humility. But here's the flip side, right? There's always a flip side. Here's the flip side. What about those who are not in authority? What about those who feel disempowered? What about those who have given up on those in positions of authority? What could happen? What could happen is apathy, right? What could happen is that people not, not participating and not, not caring about government, not caring about those in authority. And so on the one hand, those in positions of authority might feel puffed up in their pride, wanting more power, wanting more authority, right? What's the answer to that? Be humble. The flip side for those who feel disempowered, those who feel they don't have a voice, what's the response to that? And, and what did the early church community do for them? Help them to feel empowered. Walk alongside them. Accompany them. If they feel maltreated, how does the community speak for them on their behalf? The third temptation is about security. Jesus, climb up to the top of the pinnacle, jump down, for the word of God says that, the, that God's angels will rescue. Jesus says, don't test God, right? We know here this is a very visible demonstration that because we are united to Jesus, that God will take care of us, that whatever danger, now, this is not to say that when we're in danger that, okay, that, you know, that this is a license to be reckless. Uh, you know, if you're going to go parachuting, well, you better have a parachute, right? So this is not about being reckless. Um, this is to say that the security that you enjoy, early church, God is with you. God cares for you. God has our back. What's the flip side? What about those who don't feel secure? That those who experience life hanging in the balance, that those who feel their lives are threatened. Early church and 21st century church, what's your response? Hopefully, we can reassure them by our, by our accompaniment, we are here with you. We are here to help take care of you. We are here to support you. In all of these things of what's going on, the worshiping communities in the first century and hopefully us in the 21st century, hopefully we see that what's going on here is that we are so loved by God and proof positive, Jesus' baptism to which we have been connected to, that Jesus is the real deal, the real Savior and Lord by his genealogy as another proof 
And third, that we have an obligation and a, and a commitment to live out that baptismal faith, that baptismal commitment to one another and to the world around us. Thanks be to God. Amen. All right, let's have some um, conversation or any, any questions. And as we do so, and I think, um, I think the microphone is on. If anyone would like to go to the microphone and let's have a conversation or any, any responses to anything before you all disperse to small groups. Question I had when I was reading last night, um, Satan implied to Jesus that the world was his to give him, and he implied that it was given to him. Is that just him? Which confused me, and I did, there was some referencing, but it, it, it implied, it didn't imply, Satan said that the world is his, which explained that for me. So in uh, Luke 4, verse 6, and the devil said to him, to you I will give their glory and all this authority for it has been given over to me and I will give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours, that, that piece. And so the question being, um, when it says there that all authority has been given and it's been given over to me, uh, the devil that is, right? The devil is speaking there, is, um, has, has God in fact given the devil authority over the world? What is going on in there? There's at least a couple of things going on. One is, is that the devil is, of course, the uh, father of lies and is claiming something that which is not his or not it, right? Um, that uh, in the end and in the beginning and in the middle, uh, the world and all authority belongs to God. That's number one. So he's making a false claim. That's, that's one point. But the other one that that this can be also seen as, for instance, remember in the book of Job, when um, we are given the scene of, of God speaking about how to put a test to Job, how to test his faith, and that God is having a heavenly conversation, and that uh, God, God resolves that for the time being, the, that there be a time in which that, uh, that Satan will be given authority, limited authority at that, um, over, over the world and over Job's life for a time being in order to demonstrate God's glory. So it could be that, that what is going on here is that the early church knowing um, that Old Testament literature is speaking about how does the devil have some authority? Yes but it's always circumscribed. It's always within, never outside of God's own authority. So um, the devil tempting Jesus here is almost like saying, yeah, you know, uh, the, uh, uh, the bully on the playground has some power, right? right? The bully on the playground clearly has some, has some power or thinks that he or she does. Um, but in the end, really doesn't. So it's almost a, a sarcastic um, way. So it's both a, 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 um, a play on what is not, but also an affirmation of some threads in the Old Testament, like in Job, um, that there is limited authority, but even then, it is always within um, 
the scope of God's overall authority and lordship um, to demonstrate God's full glory. That even in the wiliness, in the wiliness of the devil's influence or trying to influence, it, um, God demonstrates his own glory and his, and his full power. That the devil can't even, even in every attempt, cannot even frustrate uh, the Lord Jesus um, and God's people. Any others? No one wanting to motion to the microphone? Okay, and no one is curious about the Mathean genealogy. All right. We'll have to save that answer for the men's Bible study. Let us uh, gather together in prayer as you uh, break up into and disperse into your small groups. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you. Um, thank you for your promise through your word and in the person of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we belong to him and he to us. Thank you for claiming us as your own, as daughters and sons of yours, redeemed in Jesus Christ. Help us, O Lord, to always give thanks to you and to live out that calling, to love one another and to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I pray for my friends here, O Lord, as they continue to reflect and to discuss your word, and as we all seek to live it out, to live it out in our community and in our communities around us and in your world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. To everyone, and God bless.